And we're joined again today by Erin Ayres. Welcome. Hello, thank you. Um, yeah, so those of you might remember that Erin joined me for um, The Hunt for Red October, which we had a lot of fun dissecting. And then Erin made some boat jokes on Twitter that I really enjoyed. <laughs> I made so many boat jokes about that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I have still never seen or read like that that thing because I wasn't on that podcast. Yeah, and uh, and so I still imagine that that movie slash book is just about a red submarine. Yeah, it is. Essentially, That's basically it. yep, yeah, good. And they all live in a red submarine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so our question of the week this week. Now, in the movie A Wrinkle in Time, the, this version that we're looking at, the 2018 version, Oprah Winfrey's character, Mrs. Witch. Uh, appears uh, rather large for the initial part of her appearance. Uh, and so the question of the week this week is, if in any movie you could pick one character to suddenly just be giant for the majority of it, who would it be and why? Uh, Lois, you can go first. Well, I think it'll, be, it'll come as no surprise to anyone that my mind immediately jumped to Lord of the Rings. How cool would it have, would it have been if, like... I mean, it, obviously it's not in the books, but how cool would it have been if, like, Saruman had, like, appeared as, like, two stories tall at some point. <laughs> That's or... pretty cool. I thought you were going to pick, like, Bilbo, and then he'd just be regular height or something, or, or like, Frodo, no. and he's just a regular height hobbit. Yeah. The other one I would think would be cool, very doable for that universe, would be um Darth Vader. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Oh, man, that'd be terrifying. Like how Snoke appears yeah, yeah, really yeah, yeah. big. Erin, uh, what about you? So my mind instantly went to Paul Rudd for some reason, but I'm not choosing that. Um, I guess well, I, you know, why would anyone think about Paul Rudd when they didn't have to? I mean, he's only beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> well, I had this moment of like, oh, okay, well, he, he, he kind of goes the other way in Ant-Man, so maybe that. But instead I decided, no, I actually want the title character in the Canadian camp sci-fi movie Manborg to be massive throughout because it just seems appropriate for the movie itself. Um, so Manborg in Manborg. This sounds amazing. Tell me, please tell me about Manborg. I, I I am happy to because I essentially, every time I'm not talking about Manborg, it's only like a matter of time before I start talk, talking about Manborg. Um, it's, it's from a production company called Astron 6. And um, I think it's actually on um, Netflix. It's definitely on some flavor of streaming service, maybe Amazon Prime. Um, but it's like one of those sort of good, bad movies where they clearly know how to make excellent movies, but instead they have chosen to make Manborg, which is just like ridiculously over the top. And I, I can't recommend it highly, uh, you know, Highly enough, because I just frankly love it. That sounds really great. I want to watch that today. Yeah, I was going to say, I literally cannot go with the next 24 hours without seeing some part of Manborg. <laughs> please do, and please report back, because I have been spreading the gospel of Manborg for probably like five years or so, to the point where my Christmas tree topper was a little felt Manborg that I made. <laughs> 
So you're definitely committed to the Manborg experience. I so. yes, I I, uh, I am committed to this particular bit, like <laughs> <laughs> leaning into Manborg. All right. Uh, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna finish this question off. Uh, I'm gonna throw a real curveball at you guys. Uh, Stuart Little, <laughs> but he's twice but he's twice as tall. So he's just a rat instead of a mouse. Yes. Okay. So Durigar for New York, basically. Just a big, yeah. big rat running around. Just a big old rat. Imagine like, just imagine like a, a, a two and a half foot rat, like oh, standing no, up no. and he hurts and he's cute. Oh no. <laughs> Nothing about two and a half foot rat is cute. <laughs> he still has all the same adventures, you know. Just... Oh, yeah, he's fine. Right. He gets adopted. <laughs> that's disgusting. That's the worst. That's the worst thing that you could have ever said. <laughs> Uh, we're going to be talking about something that's definitely not Stuart Little this week. Um, <laughs> or Manborg. <laughs> or Manborg. Uh, no, we're talking about A Wrinkle in Time. Yay! Okay, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of happy faces around the, uh, the podcast table this week. You like A Wrinkle in Time, Lois? This is, I was just saying to Adam, like, such an important book for me as a young girl. And I was just saying how... Everyone I've spoken to who said, yes, this was important to me, it's funny, has been has been a woman. Mm-hmm. Um, and quite a few of my male friends, Adam included, have never heard of it before. It's just really interesting because to me it's just such an important book and just so seminal in my reading as a young, as a young girl. Um, yeah, I just I have a real soft spot for this book. I I agree. I had the same experience. Um, I definitely read it when I was a child. Um, I actually, I read the entire series and most, like, it was definitely something that, um, you know, my partner hadn't ever read. Um, and he was definitely a big, he's always been a big reader. So I was a little surprised that he'd never gotten to A Wrinkle in Time, but I do think it resonates a lot more strongly with, um, the, the women who read it. Um, especially when they read it when they're, you know, I was probably like, I don't know, maybe 11 or so when I read it. Yeah. I was probably 10, Mm -hmm. probably 10 ish. Yeah. And I read, I read the first three. I didn't actually know there were five until we did the podcast. So you've had the same experience. Like your partner didn't know anything about them, but they were so important to you. It's really interesting. Like, I guess they're not a book that people buy for boys. Yeah, so I like. I mean, I, I guess I'm the odd one out in this podcast because, again, like I, like you said, I'd never heard of a Wrinkle in Time before. Yeah. Uh, I was like, oh, this movie's coming out. We should do this for the podcast. I'd I'd never heard of it yeah. at all. And it's and it's not like it's a really old book. Like it's from the '60s. So, you know, you're the same age as me. Like, yeah, it's, yeah. <laughs> you had the same opportunity to read it. So it's, it's really interesting. And yeah, it it did come out in 1962, and um, I think that throughout, like ever since then, it's been you know, with every generation since, because I actually think I'm a fair bit older than both of you. And it was, so I was reading it in the, the mid eighties and it was, it has continued to be majorly important book for so many people through like since its publication. Yeah. That's probably why it has endured. Yeah. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm fascinated because this is a really eclectic book in terms of what it deals with, you know, because you've got, like, there's, there's uh, spirituality, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of not like easy to understand science for sort of 10 year olds. And uh, I, I mean, reading this, I really appreciated that it is a book that doesn't talk down to its reader. Like it's, it's, it's a kid's book that is happy to deal in astrophysics. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and it just, it, 
it includes that, like you said, like not talking down to the reader, just ex- accepting, like explaining it in a way that makes sense within the context of what's going on um, in the story and um, just expects that like, okay, well, you're, you know, you're probably a kid reading this. You're still learning too. Like, we'll, we'll, we'll go easy with it, but not like, you know, but, but with trusting that you can understand it. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, well, I mean, looks like it's time to take a vote uh, to see what we're going to be discussing this week, the book or the film. Uh, so we're looking at the 1962 novel by, oh, I hope I pronounced this right, Madeleine Langle. 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 <laughs> it's something French. Uh, and the 2018 Disney film directed by Ava DuVernay, which was released like uh, probably about a couple of weeks ago for us. All right, well, it's time to take our vote. So uh, Lois, did you prefer the book or the film? I really hate having to make a choice for this one because I feel like a super traitor, but I am going to go with the movie because rereading the book as an adult, I found there was a a bit at the end where there was a jump out of where they were, back to somewhere else, back to where they were in the first place. That was a bit superfluous and got cut out of the movie. Also, the book ends super abruptly, and I just, that little bit of sort of, the sort of flow at the end there. I So I'm going to, yeah, that's the only reason I'm not going with the book. Erin? Uh, I have to go with the book. Uh, I Which is not to suggest that I did not enjoy the movie. I did. It was a delight to see it produced and altered in, in a lot of very effective ways. Um, but, you know, still, still I'm going to go with the book. Okay, fair enough. Uh, on the tiebreaker then, I am going to have to go with the movie yeah, and and this is again, this is no slight against the book. I think we're all in ag- in agreement that these are kind of the two works in themselves are, are are pretty good. But for for entertainment purposes, I think I enjoyed the and it's definitely the flow has a lot to do with it. Like like you mentioned, Lois. Um, but I think the movie maybe just captured my attention a little bit more. So I'll give you a oh, so before we do a plot summary, uh, I need to ask: Is it a good adaptation? And I'm actually quite interested to hear your responses on this. I think it's a great adaptation. I know they changed a fair amount. I think the stuff that was changed was changed, was was necessary. It still 100% to me felt like a wrinkle in time. Yeah, I just really enjoyed it. It was a a wrinkle in time to me. I came out of the movie going, wait, what was, I know things were different about that, but what was actually different? So it was like almost, it almost tricked me into thinking that was how the book was. Do you know what I mean? Because it felt really faithful. Yep, cool. Erin, what do you think? I agreed it was I also agree it was a great adaptation. I thought that the um the the kids who um were in it the actors were really engaging and um a lot of the dialogue is just you know in many ways straight from the book. Um I think a lot of the changes that were made were um significant and um good choices. There were other things where I was just a little bit like, well that that doesn't like this was left out, so this doesn't necessarily make sense. But at the same time, I still had that feeling of like I'm still enjoying myself. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm, I'll make it three for three. I think it's a pretty good adaptation. I mean, our, our guideline is always kind of, you know, is it does it do you not compromise the the essence of the story, but but still present it as entertaining and interesting. And I think this definitely achieves that goal. Definitely. Um, yeah, I was. I, I think it's interesting for me because I had probably only read about the first two chapters before I watched the film and then proceeded to finish the book after the fact. 
so going back and kind of seeing how the book originally did stuff was interesting. So I don't, I'm interested to see how that will affect my perception of it as we discuss yeah. the, the events of the plot. In terms of adaptations too, I also look at, is this something that can stand on its own without the book? And I felt that the movie did do that. Uh, all right, I'll give a plot summary for those of you who are unfamiliar with A Wrinkle in Time. 13-year-old Meg Murray's father has disappeared, and to find him, Meg will join her younger brother, Charles Wallace, and her new friend, Calvin, to meet three celestial beings, Mrs. Who, Mrs. Witch, and Mrs. Watsit, who will teach them to teleport across time and space in order to take them to Kamazot's homeworld of the malevolent being It, and the location of Meg's imprisoned father. Oh, man. All right, so we're going to blitz through this uh, this casting because we've got a lot of a lot of plot to deal with yeah um starting off storm reed as meg murray our lead character what did you think she's so good she's amazing yeah yeah i thought she was w- wonderful i'm just gonna say now like i cried like five times in this movie <laughs> and it was nearly all stuff that the kid actors were doing yeah it was the all the kid actors were just incredible yeah she's definitely a future star I yeah think, um Let's move on then to the uh, our other our other little star, uh, Derek McCabe as Charles Wallace. Oh my god, he was so good and so cute. He was, and I just loved every second. <laughs> he was very, he was delightful. Um, he was also very effectively creepy. Um, towards the end as well. Oh, so much. <laughs> so I was like, I could, I would watch this horror movie, whatever is happening right now, and and he he had that. Uh, you know, he just offered this sort of precocious but and quirky but also very very like self-possessed character and it, it really tracked with how I've always pictured Charles Wallace maybe a little bit more talkative than I I think the character of Charles Wallace has always been in the in the books yeah so they definitely change a couple of elements about Charles Wallace here uh, uh maybe first is that he, he's adopted yeah. in the film yeah, I think the other big one as well is, uh, and and you kind of touched on this, Aaron, is that he is definitely a, a lot more talkative in this, so, and and very uh, confident in speaking, and you know he, he stands up for for Meg in the playground, and that changes his personality, I guess, in a, 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 at least a, a small way. But do you think that was done maybe because it portrays better on film than someone who's quiet and reserved and doesn't talk a lot? I think, yeah, I would agree that that um, it definitely, I don't, it gives you more of a sense of Charles Wallace's personality um, that wouldn't come across if he wasn't talking. But he's viewed in the same way. Like, he's still not fitting in the way the rest of, like, society as, you know, portrayed by the school teachers and, and the town, like, he's still getting the um the same sort of feeling that the Charles Wallace of the book did in that like he's not fitting into their view of what a five-year-old kid should be doing and how he should be behaving so I think it works to have him be more talkative and this the result of oh you're a weird kid still be the same yeah 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 the gains are are much more here than the uh, than what you give up from yeah the actual original part of it uh levi miller as calvin o'keefe yeah i thought he was he was really good he was really a good foil not foil that's the wrong word but just a good opposite to meg and charles wallace because he's just such a doofy sort of teenage boy like meg's all about emotion she does have the intelligence there but she's currently in a period of her life where she's all about 
her feelings and wrapped up in her own emotions and anxieties and things. And Charles Wallace is all about just the intellect. I said, I have Calvin there where he's kind of wavering between emotional and then also logical, but he's also kind of a doof. (laughs) No, it makes for Um, a good triangle. Yeah, I thought, and I thought he just, I mean, obviously he is a teenage boy, but like he portrayed a teenage boy really well on screen. Uh, oh man, we've got to blaze through these ones. Uh, so the three, the three misses. Uh, so we've got Reese Witherspoon as Mrs. Watsit, Mindy Kaling as Mrs. Who, and Oprah Winfrey as Mrs. Witch. I think it's just Oprah Winfrey as Oprah Winfrey. I... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I feel like she was just playing herself. They're, they're all like, these are three really good choices. Again, an- another nice little triangle that you've got. Uh, and again, only, only one white woman in this. Yeah. You know, you've got two, two more women of color, which is fantastic. Oprah Winfrey was previously in Selma, which was Ava DuVernay's other, uh, previous film as well. So, If you can get Oprah, why wouldn't you get Oprah? Like, yeah. <laughs> especially for like this, like some sort of space goddess, like that's perfect. Yeah. So, there, I mean, there are some changes to these characters as well in the way that they're portrayed again. Um, so, I mean, starting with Mrs. Watson's probably the most similar, I feel, from, yeah. from book to film. Um, and then... Uh, Mindy Kaling as Mrs. Who is uh, what? A, what a great choice! Mindy Kaling is actually really uh, underrated. I feel. Yeah, she's a really as good an actress. actress, and she's in Ocean's Eight, which is coming out soon. Yeah, as well. I, I feel like she's really coming to her own as an actress. Yeah, they really doubled down here as well with uh, Mrs. Who on the quotes because this is basically all she can say for the majority of. Yeah, she film. has like a section where she can do. Well, it's when her power's being drained on on camera, yeah. isn't it? Where simply because it was Mindy Kaling and I like Mindy Kaling a lot. Um, I, I wish she had gotten, you know, more, uh, but she, she did still manage to convey a lot, even with all of her, lo- most of her lines being quotes. Yeah. I found it fascinating actually that she was so easily able to portray this sort of ancient being like she she just portrayed that aura of, of having been around for eons. Like with that moment when she's sitting in, you know, in her chair and in her old house, covered in all of that garlic. It was a really great scene. I wonder if, though, that's slightly to do with a Western perception of the ancient, like, wisdom of, like, Southeast Asia. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. Uh, like, I mean, if it, is, if it, is that kind of playing into this character? If it is, it was definitely subconscious. Because yeah. like, I, was, I was, you know, trying to think about this in, in terms of the podcast. I was thinking, I was yeah. actively thinking... That was quite a good portrayal, but but yeah, that that might that might have had an influence. But I'm not sure. I don't. I don't think I ran into that because Mindy Kaling grew up like ten miles from where I live, so <laughs> so I always just think of her as Mindy Kaling. She's she's from Boston. And I mean, so and Mrs. Witch. So this is probably the biggest change of all three of them. In that, in the book, Mrs. Witch doesn't like to fully materialize. So I think they made an excellent choice in having her do that. Yeah. And be Oprah. Yeah, I'm sure she fully materializes one time in the book. Yeah, yeah, but but it was definitely nice to see her. I, and I like that that there were often like I think one of my favorite scenes is that when uh, they arrive at the Happy Mediums Planet and she's walking along that bridge talking to Meg uh, mm-hmm. as she's like returned to regular size. And um, yeah, I just she was she was fantastic. Yeah, in, in that sense, like it's it's good. It was good to see her interact and not just be you know a disembodied voice. Yeah. Uh, so the other couple of people worth mentioning, Chris Pine uh, as Meg's father, Dr. Alexander Murray. I think it was a good choice, though. I saw a tweet which kind of ruined him for me in the movie, which was um a picture of, uh you know, Team America World Police, 
that movie. Oh, does that he movie. look like the main character? You know, yeah, it? the main guy in that, the main puppet. <laughs> Chris Pine <laughs> looked almost exactly like the main puppet from that movie in this movie. Um, and I was like, oh, it's ruined for me. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, like, Chris Pine, he's nice to look at. And, and he portrays, does a job. He, he portrayed a good, like, very self-confident scientist as yeah, well. Yeah, but he's way too young to be playing a guy with grey in his hair. He's 37. Come on, Disney. <laughs> <laughs> so unreal. This film's so unrealistic. <laughs> That's my suspension of disbelief. Out the window, Chris Pine is far too young to have grey hair. <laughs> Zach Galifianakis as the happy medium. That was a nice surprise. Yeah, so obviously this character is female in the book. Yeah. Uh, and moved over to a male, which a lot of the time, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of the time if you did that these days, you would be like, there'd be people on you like that. Yeah. But uh, obviously that is, you can tell by the way that the rest of this film is cast, that, that is not the spirit this was done in at all. Yeah, that was a much more reserved Zach Galifianakis performance i i knew that he was going to be the happy medium and so i was curious as to how that would go i i don't really feel like i enjoyed the like back and forth flirting between him and mrs what's it that seemed unnecessary to to me and i don't and i couldn't really there are a couple things that like as i was watching the movie i couldn't quite put my finger on why things bothered me but some things did and that was one of them where i just felt like this doesn't seem necessary yeah. Uh, and Michael Pena as Red, who's kind of its yeah. main helper, I guess. Yeah, he was good. It would have been... I mean, I know Red isn't really in most of the... The Man with the Red Eyes isn't really in a lot of the book, but, like, it was so annoying to only have a little bit of this character. Oh, because he's so good. It would have been good. so good to have, like, more of him. That, that... would have been the only change if the movie could have somehow added a bit more of The Man with the Red Eyes. That I would have accepted that change because it's a good character and it's kind of thrown away in the book. It may have also helped to like personify it later on in the book. I mean, in in the movie as well, it, it, to have some sort of, you know more of a representation of it. Exactly, because they don't go the route of having a physical brain like it is in the book. Maybe having Michael, you say Pina be there inside where they go to like would have worked well i don't know um yeah i mean he did an amazing job especially the bit where he's the puppet yeah uh, that was really cool that was really well done i thought that was just like the costuming and everything was really awesome yeah yeah no there's a lot to like about that uh so some characters not present uh sandy and dennis (laughs) r.i.p yeah r.i.p the other two siblings Uh, and the other character, the other like kind of big character that's missing is Aunt Beast, yeah. and, and basically the whole planet of Ixthus or whatever it is. So this is the bit where I was really torn because it is the bit where they sort of they go off Camazots because her father tests her off because they're in the they're going to be made slaves by it, and there's this whole bit where she hates him because he left Charles Wallace there and blah blah blah, and they're looked after by the beasts, but. Then what the movie did with it, I'm like, this is a better way of doing this, where he tries to tessa her away, but her love for Charles Wallace keeps her there, and he tesses away. So he's he's kind of I really liked it because he saved his own skin, but I really liked the bit with Aunt Beast because it's like super alien, and like so far everyone else they've met pretty much has been humanoid. Fifty fifty. Fifty fifty on whether they should have kept it. It definitely would have made 
the movie drag a little bit more at the end to have had her in it. Uh, but it also sh- like not having that and having the the shift be Mr. M- uh, well, Dr. Murray, um, Tesser away. That offers like a really interesting note of children coming to grips with like their parents fallibility exactly i loved that i thought that was amazing because like then when he meets her when she goes back to the house and he's there and she's so disappointed with him and she's realized that he's not everything and he can't provide everything for her and he's realized that she's realized that that's such a intense moment in the movie I'm kind of so. I mean, I think so. I think it was a good choice to not include this. I, I think because of what that. The, so this the the fallibility aspect. I think it's a big tonal shift to kind of go for what the book goes for in that regard because it does spend a lot of time in her anger at her father and and mm-hmm. and, and, and and part of that is her recovering from the influence of the it. But I think that it's a big tonal shift in the way that this movie kind of heads. And so I think time and tone wise, uh, I, I preferred the way that they did it in the film. But also, I think it as well in regards to, uh, you know, her having the confidence and, and realizing what it will take to overcome it. I think they cover that off pretty well in the film uh, with their choices of, you know, her, that discussion that she has with Mrs. Witch. Uh, and a lot of that also falls on Calvin mm-hmm. um, and the, the personal discussions that they have. And I feel like they, they do enough, I feel, in the film to kind of negate the need to spend another what might be what could be probably another 10 to 15 minutes in the film of, of being with uh, the beasts yeah all right we've got to move along because we have not even started on the plot yet uh, very quickly the design and the soundtrack of this uh what did you uh, design first this film looks amazing yeah it's the best i want to get it on blu-ray and watch it on the biggest best screen ever and then just be in heaven it's <laughs> so beautiful um i like a lot of it i really like a lot of the design choices one that like really stood out to me was um the depiction of camisots when they go there um and it's not ugly i mean it's it's a little a lot samey which is the whole point of that but it's not ugly and i thought that was significant because like it's sending that message of like darkness and evil isn't always ugly and then the soundtrack for this film as well uh what did you think i was kind of interested in some of the choices that they made because it's a very contemporary pop sort of soundtrack to this they use a lot of original songs to be honest i don't really remember any of the music i couldn't tell you any of the songs yeah the because so they, that i think they were tells all original. Me that they were probably pretty bland i think that was probably a design choice wise that was probably one of my least favorite parts of the film actually is because i was just like oh, i don't really care for this so let's dig into the plot so the movie starts off with uh meg's kind of home and school life and and flashes of what's happened in the past it's very uh, glimpses of this, like visions of that sort of a thing. Um, we see parts of of uh, Dr. Murray's science and kind of what led to his disappearance, but not like uh, a straightforward five minutes of exactly what happened. You know, it's just kind of interspersed with other stuff. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and a lot of time is spent uh, showing Meg and how uh, her struggles at school. Um, obviously, she's bullied uh and and picked on we we find out she has a reasonably low level of self-esteem the book takes a long time to cover this and you get the point she's actively disengaging with everybody so she's not doing everything she can to engage with the world but in the movie they give that to you really really fast 
And so we kind of get a, a little bit of this before we meet the first of the misses, which is Mrs. Watson, who just kind of meanders into their house. Yeah. I love the way that Reese Witherspoon kind of just floats over their house, like inspecting their everyday household items and things like that. She's, she's really good here. It's pretty. This is pretty similar, I feel, this this whole scene yeah. to, to the book. Um, they do a good job. This this I feel like a lot of the stuff on Earth is probably the most similar to how it is in the book, and then they kind of diverge a little more as you get out into space. Oh, oh importantly, we also get in this first bit Mr. Murray and Mrs. Murray giving a conference yes. about their work and being laughed at yes. by their colleagues and then having an argument about how uh, Mrs. Murray's saying, like, you need to, like, give them time. Like, you went straight from A to Z and you didn't give them time to understand what we're talking about. So, of course, they think you're crazy. And also that uh, it's very explicitly when he disappears, you see him disappear and he explicitly says, oh, the frequency is love. You know, right, it's very important that you know right from the beginning of the movie that the frequency that you... Tessa. That you Tessa with, that you use to jump long distances in time and space is love which i don't know that the that the book really does no the book is the book is pretty clear that it's all straight up science not like love which is 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 good to have too but um i i don't think the apart from the book being pretty heavy on the faith and you know belief the the spirituality aspect um i don't think they ever go to that like well, the answer was love um, until the very end. Well, yeah, because the, the thing that she has that it doesn't have is love. Yeah, maybe... Yeah. maybe so that's, a... that's the cure for the darkness is, is love. Maybe this is a good time to talk about the, the absence of any spiritual allegory at all in the film because... Yeah. Uh, and that's why I feel that the, the movie does take this kind of tack with it that it, that it goes for love is the answer. Because it just removes every single part of the uh, the Christian theology, which which is reasonably obvious to, to any adult reading the book. You know, like, it is pretty clearly Satan. Right, and the movie goes for the more general, non-theistic, uh, kind of like, just, just light versus dark. And that's not unexpected either. Like, no, no big blockbuster would, would get away with explicit Christian theology unless you're Narnia. Yeah, yeah. I didn't ex- I didn't expect the movie to be, you know, wicked churchy. Um, so we move on to meeting Mrs. Who. Uh, the location for this is a little different in book and film. In the book, it's like this creepy old cabin in the woods, uh, whereas it's just a kind of a, an abandoned house in the film. Yeah, I feel like that uh, it's a better choice here because of the way that they meet Calvin, and it's just like it's it's probably more believable that these kids would just be hanging around their neighborhood, walking around. Yeah. Uh, than than you know meandering in the woods. Uh, yeah, I really like that they kept Calvin just going there because he had a feeling. Yep. Yeah, that was good. The compulsion part of it was really good. Uh, so they get in there, they meet Mrs. Who. She's speaking in quotes. Yeah, it's pretty much, yeah, almost exactly the same. Yep. She has a totally badass quilt on her lap during that scene, which, <laughs> which as someone who sews and does crafts, I was like, ooh, I would like to make that. <laughs> yeah. She's um, just so cool, and, like, the inside of the house is really cool. Like, there's just, like, hanging glass everywhere. Yeah, the aesthetic's and, really good. Yeah. And then we move on to meeting Mrs. Witch. Now, this is one of those parts in the book where it drags for a bit because there's just a lot of talking between kind of the characters that you've already met. Um, yeah. Well, we kind of have to get to know Calvin. Yeah. 
and we find out that he's got lots of siblings and so he doesn't really feel like anyone will miss him if he left his house. Um, That's substituted as well in the film for his father for, yeah. being uh, like having incredibly high standards yeah. of him that he can't meet. But him being so, uh, Calvin at the same time being so lovely, like he immediately fits in in the Murray household. Which is nice. Um, Like he goes and reads Charles Wallace a bedtime story. Like he's just the, he's so sweet. Um, And they kind of substitute that for the next door neighbor um, seeing him in the garden. And he's like, why would I care if I was seen with you? Which I think is a good substitution because for a young girl who's like Meg's age, who's feeling out of place and whatever, that's exactly the anxiety is like, oh, you might be hanging out with me this afternoon, but you don't actually want people to know that you're hanging out with me. It's tying all into Meg's insecurities, which I thought was really good. We didn't mention it before, but I must say, I, lo- I do love the... So this is the, this girl that's seeing them, is, is her next-door neighbour. Next-door neighbour and the school bully, yeah. Um, but I love the trope of a uh, child stands up to bully by, like, punching them in the face and then immediately getting detention because it's yeah. always so satisfying seeing someone stand up to a bully. Yeah, she throws the basketball in her face. Oh, it's so, so good. good. Which we saw recently in Looking for Alan Brandy, I think, is where, where we also saw Oh, uh, yeah. Trope. Yeah, it's in lots of girls' movies, actually. Yeah, yeah. Like, I can think of a number of movies where... Someone gets a ball to the face. Um, <laughs> it happens in the Princess Diaries as well, yeah, doesn't it, does it? too. She throws it in the boy's face, Yes, the softball. It's also in 17 again, um, where, Zac Efron, Matthew, where Zac Efron, who's playing the dad who's in his body, like schools this kid uh, with his basketball or whatever. Oh, okay. I just Yeah, I love that trope. It's one of my favourites. <laughs> so uh, Mrs. Watson then appears in the backyard while they're all just kind of chilling. Miss Witch, you mean? Well, Miss Watson appears first, doesn't she? Oh, yeah. Yeah, sorry. And then uh, Mrs. Who, and finally Mrs. Witch uh, semi-materializes this giant, like, uh, ethereal lady, which is wonderful. Taller than the house. Yeah. And yeah, this is where that, that great line comes in, where uh, where Meg's like, you're the wrong size. She's like, there's no such thing as the wrong size. Yeah. And uh, off they go, into space. I really like the way they did the tessering, where the world kind the of shimmering. goes like... Semi-inception-y. Yeah, like kind of uh, wavy, and they can just like walk through. That was a really cool way of doing it. Yep. Uh, so they end up in this planet, uh, Uriel, same planet from the book. There is uh, so Mrs. Watson's transformation. Let's talk about that. Uh, so I, I I can't even pin down what what the book kind of seemed to imply she was transforming into. But it was sort of like a, a Pegasus thing with a, a centaur, human... A Pegasus centaur? A Pegasus centaur, yeah. Yeah, and in the movie she turns into basically a kale dragon. <laughs> That's a great which, one. Which just landed kind of wrong for me. <laughs> I was like, oh, anything in the world, you can be whatever you want, and you're a kale dragon? Oh, I loved it. I thought it was perfect. Sort of a veggie... Falcor type of situation. I um, yeah. I, I gotta say, I uh, Lois will be familiar with uh, with. I'm not sure how much of a Pokemon uh, person you are, Aaron, but it kind of looked like a Rykaza to me, <laughs> which is the giant like green uh, legendary Pokemon yeah. from the series. Yeah. Um, so that that was my uh, my impression, but I like Kale Dragon better. <laughs> I just think the horse thing would have looked stupid. I agree. Oh no, this is much better. The yeah. film, the film does better. I think this would. I think that would have been, well, not more unbelievable, but I don't know. Just something about the form of this creature. I don't know. I liked it. 
it's very avatar-y you know in a yeah. way this whole scene where they fly and you know experience yeah. the, the beauty of the planet and but the the end goal is that we uh, have to see the it or, or, well, or camazots the, it's the darkness yeah yeah so this is one of the big changes in the book there's the darkness there's camazots and there's it um and the darkness stems from the, the it. darkness stems from uh it and camazots um Camazots has been completely overtaken by the darkness, and that's why it is the way it is. But the darkness can spread to other places, and it has spread to Earth, we see later. So not, that's why, not entirely, not but it's entirely, like a but, shadow. So that's why people on Earth are being the way they're being, like being bad, like the bully and like Calvin's father and stuff, is because the darkness is going to Earth. In the movie, they don't call the darkness the darkness, they just call it Camazots. Yep. And then they call it the it. I prefer that they simplify it like this, to be honest. To me, it's more confusing. <laughs> <laughs> but do you think that was because you'd read the book first and you expected what was coming? I just don't see what's so hard about saying the darkness is spreading from Camazots. Camazots is the planet. It is on Camazots and the darkness spreads from it. That's... Like, I wonder whether this is part of our, our, that perspective shift where I've I watched the movie first and then read the book, so yeah. saw it a, a different way. Right. I think it's clear. I think it's clearer that um, in the book that the darkness and it are something that have taken over Camazots, and that is also a threat that is reaching out through the rest of the universe as well. Like it, it was a little bit confusing in the movie, even though I had the background of knowing what was going on. Um, because you don't really get that impression that Camazots was once a place that was, you know, a thriving, free-to-be-itself planet like Earth is. Um, so they head off from this planet to go see the Happy Medium, yep. uh, who will have more information on where their father is. So this is a, a small change in that, uh, in the book, the missus know where Meg's father is, um, yes. but they kind of don't give away that information straight away because the whole point of the journey is to prepare them. Whereas in the film, they just don't know where, yeah. where he is. So they go to the happy medium because Meg still doesn't understand like how everything works. So the happy medium can kind of show them different aspects of the universe. So they tested this planet. I, like I said, I already we've already talked a little bit about this scene where there's dialogue between a regular size Mrs. Witch and Meg. Uh, and it's, it's, this is part of that formative thing about... She mentions this here for the first time that um, if she returns, she might want to return as someone else. So it's just mm -hmm. furthering of that. Uh, low self-esteem trait that she's got and I, I love Mrs. Witch's encouragement I can't specifically remember like what she says but I, I feel very fondly about this scene um, and then we get into I, I love the the aesthetic of the happy mediums place is fantastic yeah yeah I thought it was really good the I balancing remember, rocks and everything I can't remember how it's described in the book but I think it is described as like a cave um but when I saw it in the movie, I'm like, yeah, that's perfect. That's exactly what I wanted it to be. Yeah. Um, and I just thought it's like every every scene and every setting and everything has been designed with characterization in mind. Because even here, Meg can't balance on the balancing rocks because she's not in balance with herself. Um, we've already kind of we've also kind of talked as well that we don't we're not I don't think any of us are particularly big fans of the whole uh, semi boyfriend thing that's going on here. Yeah, I, th I thought it was kind of cute. I didn't mind it. Um, so we re it's revealed that Mr. Murray is on Camazots, and like it's you know they show parts of the darkness, and then Meg learns a little more about the universe. 
Um, and so this is where you kind of get that scene of what it is doing on Earth mm-hmm. with the shadow and, you know, how it's affecting people. I found it was a strange way of being like, hey, this is why people are bad on Earth. But, I'm, like, it's a different universe, I guess. So. Yeah, well, I think, like, this is something the book does maybe explain a bit better is that places that have not been touched by the darkness are perfect happiness. And I guess that's your Christian allegory there. So, yeah, I guess the movie doesn't really explain that, but it, you get it in the book. Yeah. All, all planets that have not been touched by the darkness, there's just perfect happiness, perfect everything. This is where the kind of uh, a lot of the plot starts diverging, especially around Kamazots here. So, yeah. in the film, uh, the missus want to return to Earth to regroup, also to get uh, Meg's mother, um, yeah. who's familiar with kind of a bit of the science part of it. But as they attempt to test it back to Earth, Meg... Uh, who wants to... She just wants to find her father. So yeah. Her so she, so she says, to find her yeah. father re- Because they've come this far yeah. and she doesn't want to go back and then have to return, I guess. So she messes up the Tessa and they all end up on Camazots. Yeah, it's interesting because this happens directly after the missus say that they can't Tessa to Cam- Camazots. I keep wanting to say Camelot. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we shall ride to Camazots. Oh, God. When I, read, when I was reading the book, I was like, let's not go to Camazots. It's a silly place. <laughs> that is exactly where my mind went to. <laughs> yeah, I kept, I kept thinking it. Every time I read the word Camazots, I was like, oh, dear. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's interesting that they say they can't do it, and then Meg's desire to go there is strong enough to make it that they can. In the book, they just intend to go to Camazots. They take them there. Yeah, yeah. and then the missus are like, well, we're leaving you here. We can't do anything. Bye-bye. Yeah, we have no power on Camazots. You're going to have to do this alone. Here are some gifts. Some weird and cryptic gifts. Yeah. <laughs> As is always the... Uh... Oh, so we haven't mentioned this. Um, what do you guys think of... Because Mrs. Watson, her attitude is very different in the film to how it is in the book. She's a very negative about Meg a lot of the way through this film. Did you guys... What did you guys feel about this? Um, she's less negative in the book, but she is a little bit negative. Like, she's not, initially at the beginning, she's not really understanding because Meg doesn't have that same vibe that Calvin and Charles Wallace do in the book, um, which is something that isn't really translated in the same way in the movie where, like, Charles Wallace and Calvin are expressly have some level of almost like... ESP in the book and they don't really they're they're just pretty smart and very intuitive in the movie yeah now so see this is the interesting thing now I had not read the book before I the way as as the, the more this happened as the film went on I was thinking to myself is Mrs. Watts at the bad guy of this film right because I was I was starting to interpret like like is she the villain or is she going to try and turn Meg against herself and it, it got to that point where I was just like I don't know why you're so down on her Moving on with the plot, so, uh, this, so yeah, there's even the, the sequence of events on Camazots is quite different here. So now I think my memory is a little a little muddled here, but if I'm right, uh, they're wandering through the forest, and then Charles Wallace kind of is just gone in the movie. In the movie, yeah. In the book, they're kind of all together until the it takes Charles Wallace. Yeah, Camazots as a planet is more of just a regular place that's been overrun by sameness rather than the kind of ever-shifting, changing planet that it is in the film. Yeah. Um, so in the film, like, there's this... A, a storm pops up after Charles Wallace disappears. He only just... Yeah, so Charles Wallace disappears and then we get this bit where Meg and Calvin have to run from, uh, like, a storm that's, like, ripping the ground up 
they have to get over the wall, but the, then they get to the wall and it's like 100 feet up or something. Yeah. So there's no way they're going to make it up by the time the tornado reaches them. And then Meg sees that the tornado is picking up broken trees and throwing them over the wall. She's looking at the arc of the trees. It's like kind of a science, oh, yeah, scientific, like looking, looking at the scientific side of it. And then also like an act of bravery. She says to Calvin, we have to get into one of those trees and just get thrown yeah. over the wall with it. And then when they get over the wall, uh, Charles Wallace like reappears immediately. And that's something that's never explained, like why he didn't go through any of that and, you know, how, how he also managed to, to get through. And so that was something that seemed like an unnecessary change from the book. Well, so I took it that because Charles Wallace in that world sees and hears things as they are, that wasn't actually happening to Calvin and Meg. They just thought it was happening to them. That's yeah. That that what I I didn't really read it as such, but that's a good interpretation of what was going on. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well done. <laughs> so again, in the film here, uh, we move on to the kind of the neighborhood where all the houses are in the cul-de-sac, and there's all the kids bouncing the ball at the same time. Oh my god, this is the most horrible horror and film. also like greatest bit in the whole movie. <laughs> it looks like something out of a horror film. Yeah. I, I guess it's kind of intended to imply that, you know, fitting in and being the same is, is bad in the same way. This is kind of the, the film's attempt to show what the book does in in how everyone on Camagots is the same and it has removed all individuality. They take out the thing with the boy who messes up the rhythm. Yep. Yeah, I just really, that bit in the book's really good. Like, it's a really good way of just showing really quickly that how this world works and then going back to it later where the boy's being retrained, I would have liked to see that in the film. I, I, would have, I would have appreciated that more than the beach scene. This is really interesting because this is possibly my favourite scene from the whole film. Uh, I thought the aesthetic of it was fantastic. The aesthetic's good. Well, but, but beyond I that, like I, don't, I, yeah. I think because they show how big the beach, they do that big like overhead uh, shot very early in this scene. And so you see how many, like, it's just a non-stop sea of umbrellas and beaches and, and, and people. And I don't think I perceived it as, oh, this is a place where everyone is different. It's just like, it's just, a, it's also a bunch of, of same people just in, in different permutations. But, but yeah, I, I don't know. I, th- I think this is one of my favorite scenes and not just because of the aesthetic. Like, I, I thought it fit really well. Well, you're wrong. <laughs> Objectively wrong. I, I didn't. Yeah, I did. I didn't know how to say that politely. But <laughs> yeah, well, it's okay. I, I, he's my friend, so I can tell him. Okay. <laughs> he's objectively incorrect. This is where we get introduced to uh, the man with the red eyes, though, and he's great in this. Yeah. Scene. So see, like, I would have just loved more of him and more scenes with him, and yeah, it's such a shame. It's such a waste of that character. Yeah. I do like that they, they keep up the times tables thing, which the rhythm of that that lures Charles Wallace towards it. That yeah, really and cool. the um the food tasting like sand. Yep. I, and also, I love Calvin in this scene because he's just like, food! And he's just yeah, stuffing his it. face. Even when, even when this, like, Charles Wallace is saying, it's literally sand, we're eating sand, he's still chewing. Right. <laughs> it's really, it's like, I don't know. I just think that's really cute and funny. So Charles Wallace follows Red off into the, the muddle of people on the beach and uh, and is lost. Uh, so this is where the book, uh, which has not been following the same sort of sort of path that we have, they go through this central, central intelligence thing yeah. and find their father, 
which is now where the, the so the, the movie takes us into this weird uh, like extra dimensional space. So Charles Wallace has now been taken by it yep. and is acting hella creepy. Yeah. And they're kind of in this this small dome which there's just nothing in. Um, and this is where Meg uses the gift of Mrs. Who's glasses to see uh, the invisible stairs. Yeah, I love this bit. Um, the, this is in the trailers, and yeah, I was wondering how it was fitting the in. The aesthetic bit of, like, the glasses show her where the parts of the building that she can't see are, but they appear as, like, blueprints, and she walks into a hallway, and her father's just in the hallway. In that weird art installation. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, so that's slightly different to the book, where they're, like, they're going through the central central intelligence charles wallace is acting strangely he's obviously been overtaken by it but he's still with them um and they keep trying to like draw him out again but it is like talking to them yeah he's he's actually showing them around yeah but he's acting weirdly yeah and then he shows them where their father is and he's he's in in like a weird tube thing and meg puts on the glasses and realizes she can walk through the wall like, it, that that scene is really great. Like, all that stuff's really great in the book, but I can see why you would just make it a lot simpler in the in the movie. Just have her walk up the steps and then through into where he is. So, in the film, uh, Charles Wallace uh, kind of just uh, begins to overtake Meg and Calvin here, and he starts, like, using his power to drag them down this hall to go, to take them to, I guess you call it the core of yeah, it. Yeah, and, and Dr. Murray. Yeah, Dr. Murray as well. Um, Dr. Murray is able to resist long enough to begin tessering away. Um, and again, Meg, who uh, wants to stay and, and doesn't want her to leave Charles Wallace, uh, basically forces herself to, she removes herself from the tesser and can, remains. Um, can I just do a, a check with everyone? Everyone was crying like through the whole scene where she, she sees her father again and Oh yeah, her. like a baby. And then... And then through this whole bit where he's like, he's like, no, he's not going to take you. He's not going to take you. And like trying to like take her. And she's like, no. Oh my God. I think I only cried during the initial reunion sort of part of it. I just like uh, cried for like 15 minutes of this movie. (laughs) (laughs) So I was like, oh God, they don't want to lose each other again. And this movie, I don't know, they downplay it or something. It seems totally realistic. And that just caught me, caught me right in the feels. <laughs> Whereas I, I cried, like, almost anything. I cried during the Muppet movie when they got their theatre back. That was so nice. Oh, my God. Adam. I cried cool runnings every time <laughs> when they, they, they lift the sled up. I, I have to say, I will cry in movies where kids are in danger. Yeah, this movie cried like a baby. I did not cry during it. <gasps> You heartless person. I guess I am. I don't know. You think that I, I, I don't know. Like I'm not a big crier in, in, in theaters. Like I think certainly it was absolutely affecting. Yeah, that's fair. I think that's That'll have to do for Lois. (laughs) So as, yeah, like I said, uh, Meg kind of removes herself from the Tessa and remains uh, on Camazot's. Um, And now we'll kind of flick over to the book where this is the whole part where they, they Tessa back to, what was it called? Ixthus or something? That sounds about right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the the planet where Aunt Beast uh, lives. Yeah, so in the book, Mr. Murray does manage to Tessa Calvin and Meg away. But not to, But he doesn't, he's trying to take them to Earth, but he's weak and he's not very good at tessering. So, which is how he ended up on Camazots in the first place. So he takes them to this weird random planet and... And weird tentacle aliens, come and take care of them. Yeah, so they have to go through the darkness because they're on camazots and Meg gets, like, paralysed by the darkness. 
um, and she's like completely frozen and cold and partly because she already disbelieves in herself. Like, it just manages to take hold of her, yeah. all these evil thoughts. And the anger takes a long time to subside yeah. as well. And so these tentacle, fairy tentacle beasts with no faces come and find them. And they're like, we can help her and we'll look after you. And there's this, like, just long extended bit where she's being looked after by this one of the beasts, which she starts to call them. Eventually, uh, uh, Meg and Calvin. And does Mr. Murray also go back? No, just Meg goes back. Yeah, just Meg. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and so this is where we get the scene kind of in the, the core of, of it. Yeah. Um, so literally all they do is take this out, Dr. Murray and Calvin test her away, and Meg stays. Yep. So it's literally just a transplant out of that scene. Yep. The so, angle that they both that both book and film take, and they, they approach it slightly differently. So one of the, the gifts that Mrs. Watson gives Meg is her faults, mm-hmm. um, uh, whereas in the book I think they... they, they phrase it in such a way as it's basically um you can defeat it with the one thing that it doesn't have that you do which uh, well they they see the they see the missus's um for a second time in the book so that the missus's find them on ixthus and they give meg a second round of gifts yeah the insubstantial one yeah so like mrs witch i think gives her her love yeah she does and so that's the thing she relies on that's the thing that jolts her out of not falling into its trap because it tells her the missus don't care about you missus witch never loved you and she goes no i know she does she told me she does right and she also has this moment of like wow this space angel loves me i'm i'm pretty impressive and that's what kicks her you know kicks it up a notch for her in the book yeah yeah so but she's only got the first round so yeah she has the gift of her faults so i think like it's kind of suggested that one of her faults is stubbornness and that's the kind of... That's the thing that's kept her on camera. Yeah, she keeps resisting. And, yeah. And that. I love the way... So the film plays this out. This this is a great scene, this this climactic scene. Yeah. Uh, so, like, it is this kind of whole network of... Uh, it's almost like the inside... It's kind of like what you see in, uh, I don't know, in Guardians of the Galaxy 2, like the inside of Ego, like the, the yeah, you know, giant rocks that, connected yeah. by, like, you know, long, other long... Well, yeah, I mean, it looks like what you would imagine neurons firing yeah. would look at, like. So that makes sense because in the book, it is, a giant uh, brain. it is a brain double the size of a human brain just sitting on like a plinth. Yeah, the 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 film does better here in visualizing this. Yeah, I don't know how effective that would have been. No, not at all. Um, I think. But I like that they kind of suggest that it's a giant brain by having it be like the internal part yep. of it. Mm-hmm. And so Charles Wallace is kind of running around taunting Meg as he runs between. Uh, and this is my favorite bit where he conjures up this. This is what you could be if you jo- if you just come with it. Yeah. Uh, and we see and and so we see this bizarre alternate version of Storm Reed who's dressed up as kind of what I imagine she would be like if she was like the bully. Yeah. Uh, and, and she's, like, you know, all pretty and, and, and dolled up. and Yeah, well, like, more um, towards a, a certain standard of beauty. So her yeah. hair's been straightened. And obviously that's when you're a teenage, a teenager of any gender, but, like, teenage girls, like, you just want to be what you see in the magazines and on TV and whatever. Um, and so that's kind of being represented there. Especially because the film's already built up, oh, I want to return, I might want to return as someone else. Yeah, exactly. And that's, so you're seeing the embodiment of the someone else she yeah, wants to return which as. which makes this very, very effective. Yeah. But her stubbornness, like, allows her to overcome that and her, her, her focus is on Charles Wallace. And so she loves him into, uh, well, out of uh, being controlled by the it. 
Yeah, so he keeps hurting her and she just keeps saying, I'm going to love you regardless of what you do to me. And that's how, and literally, like, the control is broken as as she says that. And, and, and it is destroyed. Him. Yeah, and Camazos is also freed in the, yeah. in the film. I don't know if it's freed in the book. Because, like, you know, you never really know because the book just kind of almost ends there and then. I think that it. I think that Camazots in the book is freed, although they don't dwell on it. And I don't think that they really give the same impression that it, i.e., evil, is vanquished forever. Um, so they Tessa. So Meg Tessa's everyone home, um, back to Earth, and uh, we get the nice reunion of uh, uh, Mr. Murray and Mrs. Murray. That's a beautiful little. So we get first the reunion of. The reunion of Mr. Murray and Meg, which I again started bawling. And then Mr. Murray and Charles as well, because he's never really known his son. Yeah, just this bit, like we were saying, how this movie takes attack of showing that your parents aren't infallible. And so this is the bit that we were talking about earlier where he says to her, I'm so sorry that I left, both that he left in the first place and that he left her on Camazots, like that he tried to take her from Camazots and not save Charles Wallace. It's just such an amazing moment. Um, the two actors do so well at it. And, oh, my God, I cried so much. <laughs> I especially cried for the rest of this movie because then Charles Wallace comes out and he meets Charles Wallace, like, for the first time because um, he's only ever seen him, like... As a baby. As a baby and then under the control of it. Uh, yeah, and then they go into the house... And they're like, we have a surprise for you to their mum. It's just beautiful. Yeah. And and then Calvin kind of heads off to go stand up for himself, I guess, to his dad. They don't really, do, they don't dwell too hard on that and you never see any of it. And that's pretty, that's pretty much the end. All right. It's time to recommend. Uh, Lois, would you recommend the movie and the book, uh, A Wrinkle in Time? Yeah, of course. I recommend both. They're both uh, really great. I recommend this book if you have young pre-teen or young teen kids. It's just a really great book. And I also think, like, the movie is uh, for everybody. Erin? Uh, yes, I would I would and have recommended both the book and the movie. Um, as I mentioned, I took two, two of my nieces to see the movie, and um, one of them, the 13-year-old, has read the book, has read the first three books um, and loved them, and now the, the 9-year-old also wants to read it. Yeah, I'm also happy to uh, to recommend both. Uh, I think that the the book is is interesting. I I'm, I hope that uh, this movie will inspire parents to give it to their young boys because I definitely think there's nothing that should that would stop a young boy reading and enjoying this. And like, how many times have young girls been forced to read books with with you know male protagonists because <laughs> exactly. that's all they're at, all that's out there. So th- and this is a fantastic, well written book that doesn't dumb it down for kids you know like it, it, it trusts them to understand and enjoy and i think that's what what brings out the quality in this so yeah definitely recommend the book and the movie is fantastic it's all ages i feel like sometimes it doesn't quite accomplish what it wants to and it, it's got it's trying to cover a lot of bases but for the vast majority it's very effective and and a very enjoyable film and so i will highly recommend this movie what else? What else are we into outside of Wrinkling Time, Moss? Uh, I've just been watching Red Dwarf. I've seen the odd episode here and there before, but I haven't um haven't ever sat down and watched it. There's huge um shifts in quality. Yeah, it's it's good. 
Um, Erin, have you got anything to uh, to the plug that you're enjoying at the moment? Um, sure. I am. Uh, well, I'm reading the second, rereading the second book in the Time Quintet, A Wind in the Door. Um, at the same time, I also have just taken out from the library Margaret Atwood's Angel Catbird. It is her graphic novel about half cat, half owl superheroes. And Tree Trunks is old and bonkers, and I can't wait to read it. Cool. That's fascinating. <laughs> I'm, I'm not finished it yet, but I have in my library, uh, you might have seen this book in, in bookstores, The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck. So it's very, uh, very by Mark Manson. Uh, it's a lot of not giving a fuck. It's it's very good. It's like a self help book for people who hate self help books. Yeah. Um, it's just a, a a nice way to. It's, it's I think it gives a lot of perspective. Yeah. Is its its best uh, aspect. Um, yeah. And I've not finished it yet, but I'm thoroughly enjoying it. It's a very easy read. Yeah. You do not have to have a high level of uh, of reading ability to enjoy this. That's about it for this time. Uh, and boy howdy, am I excited for what we're bringing you on our next podcast. Avengers Infinity War it's happening <laughs> yay <laughs> are you a big Marvel fan Erin at all I have seen all of the Marvel movies and read a great many of the comics um I haven't read the I haven't read Infinity War um and Avengers the Age of Ultron I didn't love but in general I like all of the Marvel movies I will go and see any of them yeah definitely oh my god I think it's gonna be so good like every Every new trailer that we get, I'm just like chills. <laughs> yep. No, I agree. Um, slash already writing up my Stucky sla- slash fiction. <laughs> <laughs> um, for those of you at home who want to know what we're going to be reading in preparation comics-wise for this, uh, we're going to be looking at two uh, short series. The first of them is The Infinity Gauntlet, which is the original 1991 uh, comic series. There's six issues. It's pretty famous. It's like the original appearance of the, the Gauntlet um, and the Infinity Stones. And then we're going to be uh, reading uh, Infinity, uh, which is just the name of the series. That was a very, very more recent one. I think it came out about 2013, maybe 2012. Um, But there's also only six issues of that. It's just called Infinity. And that also deals with a kind of a more modern take on Thanos. And and a lot of the the characters, which uh, his, his little group of minions... Uh, they all... Ah, minions! Yeah, yeah. Thanos is going to come with all his little yellow minions. Oh my god. <laughs> well, they follow the most evil person around, right? Isn't that their deal? Yeah. <laughs> no, but they... Uh, uh, his his group of, uh, like, sub-villains all stem from this comic series called Infinity. So uh, those are the two series that we're going to be reading in prep for this. So I highly recommend that you go and uh, find some copies of those on, uh, like, um, any comic website. Uh, of course, you can find and contact us at wereadthebook at gmail.com, on Twitter at readthebookpod, and on Facebook at the We Read the Book discussion group. Uh, and subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher if you're on Androids, and uh, and those podcasts will be downloaded to your device. Um, thank you to the Dada Weatherman for our um, theme song, Human Light. We love it. We like you. Uh, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Uh, for now, I've been Lois, Mrs. Watson Mitchell. I've been Adam, Mrs. Witch Heat. And I've been Erin, Mrs. Who Airs. Yay! We'll see you next time. Boo! Thank you. for your fire. Cause you're my human Jumps to a future where they're fighting against Count Draculon.
<laughs> and <laughs> and Manborg is a former soldier who's been put back together with um, various pieces that you know make up some bits of man, some bits of Borg, and um, things unfold thusly. <laughs>